Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jarrell Mason, also known as Jay Mason. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have two guys from two very well-known, respected groups in the 90s on the pop and arm b field, New Jazz Swing at its finest. And if you would have told six, seven-year-old me that I'll be friends with these two gentlemen, I would have laughed at you right in your face. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mark Gay, formerly of Shy, and Kevin KT Thornton, formerly of Color Me Bad. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Uh, thank you. Pleasure to be here, bro. Yeah, man. I appreciate you guys coming on and having you guys on respectively beyond the album cover and time machine which was the first incarnation of that kt so let's just go ahead and jump right into it so who was the earliest influence for both groups that even one of you can answer first kt you go well i mean you know <clears throat> i mean we were we started out doing like acapella and stuff so we had some early influences like with the doo-wop style of course like the temptations um the the dells those type um but you know going into you know uh when we found out we had to learn how to dance we started studying bobby brown uh new edition was just i mean i still kind of fan out on new edition you know? um but personally as a male vocalist um my dude is uh, i love people bryson i love um i love uh james ingram uh, so we, you know, being multi-ethnic, uh, we had a lot of different influences, you know, George Michael, of course, the Jacksons, Prince, um, uh, just a variety, even Kenny Loggins, you know, uh, Huey Lewis in the news. Uh, it was just a bunch of people that we were really uh, listening to uh, early on. Yeah, to piggyback on that, um, I mean, shoot, commission uh journey i mean all, all those groups that were in the 80s i mean i still listen to a lot of the music now and the melodies are so infectious and just catchy and there's nothing you could do but groove to it no matter where it came from the genres that came right before we started performing and getting together and it it, it just made us really have to work that hard to be respected based on how the 80s were and uh since they came out before us we had to pay attention to what they were doing because we were like, okay, they're doing all this dancing stuff. Can we do that? And then we got in the studio and we we're like, it's not really working for us. We got to figure this out and <laughs> do something a little different. <laughs> but uh, we, we ended up uh, not really focusing on that, but we met a lot of the people that he mentioned on the road, James Ingram. We met him later on and man, that guy, talk about the antithesis of what you think somebody could be at certain points, James Ingram was, he was that guy, very respected, very, but very tough as well. And so he was very serious, always remember about him. Very, very intense too. Very oh, and Jarrell, let me, let me throw in, and I'm sure Mark will, will, will probably agree to this. Um, everybody got to give homage to uh, Take take Six, man. Ooh, oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. Six. Yeah. Oh, acapella to oh, yeah. if uh, yeah. between so, between them and Bobby McFerrin. I think that period uh, right there yeah. is so important on studying how to do vocals on the mic and trying to get it done. And it was so clean and so pure that if you couldn't get it that pure, don't even try it. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and I do want to mention that a lot of people may not know this, but originally your guys' name, Color Me Bad, originally was Take One, correct? Before you guys yes, um, changed uh -uh. it to Color Me Bad? Co yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Take One in high school. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Take Six came on and, and was just like, oh, man. We're going <laughs> to <laughs> you gotta take it back, huh? <laughs> oh. Right. Uh, we changed it. We switched. Now, did you guys name yourselves or okay? So I'm gonna give you the I'm gonna give you the industry answer, then I'm gonna give you the truth. So the industry answer, which I mean it still worked, but you know, there's we're multi-ethnic and, and we really wanted to we rode with it because we wanted to to be judged based off of our our sound right not necessarily by the by the look so if you're gonna color us anything colors bad because actually to be perfectly honest there were certain um record deals that we did not get mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they heard the, the the at that time the demo tape and they thought we were all black and then when they saw us they you know you know they were you know they just they were like we don't know how to place you guys and, and this that, and the other so that's what one of the reasons that um on you know when we came out with i want to sex you up it didn't even have i mean nobody knew what we looked like until the video came out um but the truth of the matter was was when we had to come up with a name we uh we man we had some some god-awful name i mean we had some really corny name that we threw out there and it just so happens that sam was looking through the newspaper and there's a racehorse called color me bad in oklahoma city and we we just added an extra D to the back and took the name, and then we it, it kind of fit, so it, it stuck. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we can relate to uh, people not knowing what we look like because our first like cassette cover it was just black, green, yellow, and the name Shy on it. If I ever fall in love, nobody knew what we looked like, and they thought we were the complete opposite. They didn't know we were all black. Mm. They didn't know where we were from. So it was the complete opposite reaction. So if it's on pot radio at the time, they just kind of went with it. And then when they found out what we looked like, they're looking like, oh my goodness, where, where did this come yeah. from? And then we tell them we're from Howard on top of it. Then it just took off and went a whole different direction than what people even expected. So the record company didn't know what to do. The pop department was fighting with the R&B department, trying to figure out what song should be what after if, if I ever fall in love. And it, it was a hot mess. It was a hot mess. But it was a good hot mess because we had a great right, problem. Right. So, that, it, so we could relate to definitely people not knowing what we looked like when that song came out. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned all the groups that were influences on you all prior to getting into the Jack business. And I wanted to know what was both you guys' reactions. You mentioned New Edition, but I want to talk about this one group who I felt to me was right up there with New Edition. Their dancing style was a little bit harder, funkier in terms of dancing, but they could sing their butts off, really dancing top notch. I want to talk about Troop. So let's talk about uh, Troop. Hey, I'm Ooh. sorry. Can you repeat that? It, it started cutting out. I don't know, Mark, it was cutting out on your end, but on my end, it was... It was cutting out. I, could, I couldn't get the full question. All right, so let's talk about the reaction of when you guys first heard and saw Troop. <laughs> I got a Troop story. All right, so we um, we used to sing a song. Uh, it wasn't a single um, that I can remember, 
but it was, I think it was like on the B side of, of one of their singles uh, called Still in Love. It was a, a, it was a, it was a real cool, I mean, pretty like love song. And we used to sing it in, in, um, in, in, uh, in our, in the uh, talent shows, you know, around the city, of, you know, in Oklahoma City during high school. And at one point, even though we were too young to sing or go to these nightclubs, there was one particular nightclub that all the, primarily the black artists would always go through. And it was called the Odyssey. So what we did was uh, we were always ambitious. We went and talked to the owner of the club or the manager or whoever he was. And we're like, hey, listen, you know, we, he never asked us, to, I, I, so we didn't offer it. But we're like, hey, listen, we, we let us sing for you. And if you like us, let us open for these groups. You don't even have to pay us. Just let us come to the sound check. So he agreed. And one particular time, Troop came through. And of course, Troop, man, Troop, we love New Edition for everything that they did. But Troop was like the first to like bring like modern dances to, to the scene you know, and, and the vocals just killing it. Yeah. So um, I remember going to the, to the club during sound check during in the middle of the day. We met, we met Alan first in the, uh, in the bathroom. And we, uh, and we, I think we sang for him and then he came out. Uh, no, we told him, we told him we sang and we told him that we did that song Still in Love. And, and lo and behold, I kid you not, the track played over the intercom right then and there. And we told the rest of the group, we sing this song. They're like, oh yeah? All right, go ahead and sing. And we did it. And I remember Steve Russell said, bro, you, you sound just like us. <laughs> so it was really great. But this is another cool thing about Troop. Little did I know Steve Russell's mom and my mom went to high school together in oh. Amarillo, Texas. In oh. fact, where I grew up, I grew up on 14th Street, Northwest 14th Street. And he grew up on Northwest 16th Street, just a couple of blocks away. Never even knew it. That's cool. Yeah, it wasn't until we did the BET Awards like in 2014 and uh -huh. we were one of the featured groups and they were one of the featured groups of the 90s and we started talking and man, all of that just started coming out. <laughs> like, this is nuts. Small world. Really small. Um, I think I first heard, well, I'll take it back. One of, my, one of my Howard buddies, he lives in Columbus, Georgia. So we went on a trip to home and his sister, I don't know if she dated Dallas, but some kind of way on the way back, we had to go by the studio and she came out with this tape. And of course the tape is true. Mm. We listened to that tape all the way from Atlanta, all the way to Hampton, because I had to be back at Howard the next day. I don't know why we were driving so late, whatever that was, but I learned that record the entire way and I could not believe what I was hearing. The vocals were so pure and the way they were singing it and, the, and all these harmonies, I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? And I listened to it like the rest of the semester and uh, man, Troop became one of my, my, my favorite groups at that point. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely great group. They were so cold, they had a dance. Mm -hmm. The Troop dance. That? Yeah, the Troop dance. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, because I believe there was a Soul Train performance, a new edition doing If It's In Love, and they were doing the troop dance as kind of like the winking and eye saying, hey, I see you guys from Pasadena out there doing your thing. Uh, we mentioned earlier the commission and Take Six. So can we talk about the influence of those generations of gospel groups like Take Six, Commission, the Winans, Clark Sisters, influence the merging of R&B and gospel? And I also want to throw in John P. Key as well. Mark, you want to go ahead? I'll, I'll do a little bit. Um, commission was great for us because the way our, our, our vocals were so similar, all four of us, we had similar tenor voices. Garfield had the deepest, he was the baritone, but our tones allowed us to be that, that smooth harmony in the middle. And that all came from commission. We used to sing commission day and I ran back to you. Um, every single harm we could get our hands on. And that allowed us to merge that over to what we were doing in, in all of our songs. But uh, if it wasn't for that particular sequence of groups coming after the wine-ins and how they came out, I, 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 having untrained voices at that point and trying to have that influence in R&B. So we, we didn't listen to the, the, the solo going over the top uh, gospel singer because none of us really you know had voices like that we were kind of smoother so that's why we went toward the commission direction than some of mm -hmm. the other groups mm -hmm. yeah i didn't i didn't really i got i, I got more I, into it later on in life as far as knowing who they were of course i knew the the wine ends um but like you know um Fred Hammond is, is a huge influence for me especially a pivotal point in my life uh when um, I was com convert com converting my life, changing it over, giving my life to the Lord, and um, somebody had suggested I listen to, uh, he had an album called Spirit of mm -hmm. David, and I mean, that thing just told, I mean, I, I wore that thing out. But it's interesting that you mentioned, there's another person that you mentioned. So I remember being in Oakland, California, and actually one of the guys in the group kind of ticked me off that night. Just some some kind of petty, and I I just didn't want to be in my in my uh in my room just kind of stewing. It was something that you know I would get over, but at that particular point, I was kind of irritated with one of the guys in the group. So I was downstairs in the lobby when all of a sudden this big dude walks up to me, and he was like, "Hey, brother, I just want to hand you a you know just give you these tastes, man. I'm out here with my choir." And uh, we're just getting ready to start, start touring. And I was like, okay, all right. So I would listen to the, these, these uh, demos, I mean, these tapes over and over on the tour bus. And then we took a break from touring, went home. I turned on the TV and it, it was like some award show, gospel music award show. And they said, and now introducing the new prince of gospel music, John P. Key. <laughs> and it was that dude. I was like, that dude <laughs> talked to me in the, in the in the lobby, man. He gave me these. It was almost, it's like some real early music and stuff that he had done. But I become a real big fan of his after that, of course. John P. Key is the truth. That boy is ridiculous on the vocals. <laughs> yeah, very cold. And when was the first time both of you all heard of each other's respective groups? Because the rise were both you guys very similar, if I ever. 
went from being a regional local hit to being an international smash. And then we all know what I Want to Sex You Up did, pop crossover smash, number two song of the year for 1991, and really took the CMB album to heights. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, I Want to Sex You Up. I mean, I was at Howard, and all the girls, they went crazy over that song. I mean, it was um, nuts. Like that was that was the song New Jack City and you know all the stars from New Jack City came on campus because they do premieres around DC that kind of thing and when that song came out that's all anybody played just that whole semester that's all they played that whole spring all you heard is ooh uh, they just it went crazy so that's the first time I heard of the guys and then I don't I don't know if we met right then but I think we met later on after we got out to California and then. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we just always admired the group, saw what they were doing. They worked hard. They worked hard. They, them boys right there, they're bad. bad. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and much respect to your group as well. You know, of course, we were, um, at the time, I think it was just primarily, you know, us and and boys and men doing the, the acapella stuff. I mean, I know Jodeci could, but they had that real um, R&B edge. So uh, when they came out, ooh, da-da-do. I was like, what? Oh, now come on, boy. I mean, everybody was killing that song. Everybody loved that song. Man, that was, that. y'all did that. I mean, and, and y'all had, you know, quite a few good hits, man, after that, too. I mean, the, the harmonies and the tones in your voices were, I mean, we gave you guys much respect, for sure. Mm -hmm. Much appreciated, much appreciated. And all that stuff, we learned, we, we formed it. And we did a boys and men song because we just wanted to not try to do our original music at that point, but we wanted mm. to know. So that we just had to start from there. And then from there, we start working the harmonies and that kind of thing. Mm. Right. And you mentioned how with KT with the success of I Want to Sex You Up, you guys had to go in the studio real fast to do the CMB album. Now, I want to talk about I Adore Me or More and how mm -hmm. back in 91, how it was rare to hear a portion of the song in Spanish being played mm -hmm. on R&B radio. So yes. the idea was it to have Mark sing his verse in Spanish? And how did that come about? Well, well, to be perfectly honest with you, all right, so there's a little story behind all of that. Well, let me go back to and tell you. I don't know if you know, but originally, we weren't even supposed to sing I Want to Sex You Up. We had never heard of it. We were supposed to sing, uh, don't wake me, I'm dreaming. We, we were, that's the song we were supposed to do, and we were going to do that. And um, it just so happens uh, that the record company introduced us to uh, Dr. Freeze, and, and he let us hear the song. Come to find out, he had given the song to, or offered the song to BBD. It was written for, him, for them. Well, I guess it was written for the, for the movie, but then offered to them and they turned it down. And we said, that's what we wanted to do. But going back to I Adore Me More. So remember I told you that club, the Odyssey, one of the, uh, one of the first groups that we met at that club uh, coming out of high school was uh, the group Tony, Tony, Tony. And Dwayne Wiggins was so, he was really influential. I mean, we're still cool to this day because of the impact that he made, like after the show, he spent like a couple of hours just talking to us, 
and educating us on the industry. And, and I, and I was just like, man, that's the kind of dude I want to be, uh, you know, when, whenever we make it, I want to be like that real gregarious and cordial with the, with the fans, et cetera. Well, fast forward to from that point later on, we ended up flying to New York. We had gotten management by that time and they were, you know, recording or, or trying to get us a, a record deal. before we actually, I, I don't know if we had officially moved to New York or not, but I remember us being out there and somehow we got wind that Tony, Tony, Tony was actually um, going to um, be in New York to do their release party for uh, the album, It Feels Good. So we got in touch with um, with Dwayne Wiggins, went there, and he said, guys, you guys need to go to the ASCAP party. And we're like, well, what's ASCAP? And they're like, well, you know, it's the publishing company. Any and everybody's going to be there. All right. She said, I'll get you in. So he got us in. Now, you got to also remember, prior to even meeting Tony, 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 in Oklahoma City, we were always trying to meet anybody we absolutely could and sing for. So when they would come to town, um, we would always just, you know, we would hem them up and we would just sing a cappella to them. One of the people were, uh, was uh, uh, Karen White. She was on tour with Bobby Brown during that particular time that we sung for her. Now you fast forward back now to, to that, that ASCAP, uh, uh, uh meeting and things like that she was there mm. at the time she was dating she wasn't even married to him yet but she was dating terry lewis from jimmy jam and terry lewis she remembered us from us singing for her in the mall in oklahoma city she told terry lewis and jimmy jam y'all need to listen to these guys so we sang for them he, Jimmy Jam saw that we were multi-ethnic and he asked us, do you all write songs? And we said, yes. Then he asked or said, you all should write a song in English and Spanish. So we went back to Oklahoma. We hooked up with the musical director that we were doing all of the, um, uh, the uh, talent shows with. He, he did music for everybody and we wanted to give back. So we, we swooped, swooped him up and that's when we wrote and recorded I Adore Me More," which is actually the song that got us our record deal. Wow. An amazing story. Now, KT, I want to ask you this. Are you, were you familiar with the R&B group Mason? They were from Tulsa, Oklahoma, came out around 85, 86. They were signed to Electra. Um, briefly, they had a record called uh, Breathless. I, I don't remember Mason. No, I might, I might have, heard, if I hear the song, I might recognize it, but I don't recall it, Mason. Okay. Yeah. But I want to talk about really quickly for you, KT, being from Oklahoma, just the influence of the Gap Band and what they meant to the industry, especially Uncle Charlie. I mean, Charlie Wilson is just ridiculous. You know, I, I mean, I always liked him. I always, I always liked the Gap Band. I mean, I mean, they're, it was just, they were just so funky and I love their stuff. However, I really got an appreciation for them in 2011. In 2011, you know, Charlie Wilson 
Oh, well, we were on this whole, um, we were on this, this uh, show with Justin Timberlake in Las Vegas. He was doing a benefit concert and he had us, Sugar Hill Gang. He had uh, Charlie Wilson, Earth, Wind and Fire. He had um, the Commodores. He had a lot of folks on that, on that show. Nobody, I kept hearing all this buzz. Nobody wanted to, um, to go behind Charlie Wilson. And he didn't, he didn't close. He was like in the middle of the show. Thank God we were in front of him, but we're like, man, what's going on? I mean, nobody wanted to go behind Charlie Wilson. And when that dude came out, he outperformed all us younger dudes, all the <laughs> old dudes. He was killing it. He was killing it with the dance moves he, and the vocals, just forget about it. So, I mean, I give much props to, to him and to know that, you know, where he came from, you know, all the struggles that he had been through to overcome that and then still be relevant today. That's just amazing and a blessing from God. And thank goodness, because basically he is R&B music for how many decades now? I mean, that, that guy, on. that band, one, two, three, four, five, says it keeps going. Charlie yeah. Wilson, name Charlie, I mean, last name Wilson. <laughs> I mean, all of that right there. I mean, you know, you had somebody in the, in the 80s and 90s imitate you become you, yeah. do well with you, and then come back after them and you resurrect your career. How can you do that? Yeah, because that, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, like just like you said, Mark, I mean, come on, let's let's be real. Um, And, and admittedly so, Aaron Hall. Aaron Hall yeah. will give homage straight. I, I was like, how can somebody sound so much like somebody else? Charlie Wilson was his dude. That's who he studied, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I want to know- An um, Amazing time period. And, and luckily for that music is, it's never going to be the same. Yeah, and I want to know from a group standpoint, what Joy is Rose. the importance of the, so what's the importance of the bathroom acoustics? Because it seems like to me, all groups, they start <laughs> off doing their harmonies in the restroom. I mean, how can you harmonize if somebody's doing, you know what, in stall number three? So what's the importance of performing acapella in the bathroom and really getting those acoustics and anyone can take this go ahead mark <laughs> bathroom acoustics hmm let's see if you could have the reverberation of a bathroom in a studio you would have just money upon money upon money the way it sounds the way it's crispy the way it bounces around in a bathroom there's nothing like that's why everybody tries to sing when they take a shower because there's nothing like the acoustics of that, whatever that material is, that's what makes it sound. It makes you think anybody can sing at that point. And, but if you have harmony in that, and that's what we try to really get across on the uh, If I Ever Fall In Love album. I mean, we're it's all four of us on one mic for most of that album. And the way you do the harmonies like that, I and mean, we just stacked it and stacked it and stacked it, but we wanted to give that effect of being in the bathroom on the mic. And it really worked. And because it was analog then, it was just kind of just smooth, soothing, and that kind of thing. And music changed right after that. But there's no way you could recapture that sound now unless you go back and put it on tape. Because digital just is it's a little too crispy for that analog sound and that smoothness with those mics back then. I agree. 
Yeah, because I mean, both you guys groups have been Jack, the staple. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. So both groups staples have been in talent shows to this day. And I know some of you fellas probably done sang it a couple of times to a couple of lady friends you were entertaining. Um, so also want to get your take when you first heard or seen <laughs> the group riff. Oh, riff, yes. Boy, please, come on. When I saw when we saw Lean on Me, look, we used to we actually took that song, their alma mater, and we changed the words to it. Uh, we made it about Jesus, made it kind of like a, a gospel type of thing and we would sing that all the time on on the road man that those harmonies oh my gosh riff yes i mean that riff to me just um that that's it just you know music has the ability to take you back to specific time periods and that was a very special time in our lives especially when we learned um how to do that uh learn that particular arrangement that was really cool. I give props to Riff, yes. So that, that whole development of learning Riff, who Riff was, Darnell went to high school with those guys. So when they were on the road with Boys to Men, that was our first whiff of actually seeing a group being on the show or at a bigger time. So we were learning from them and they stuff was you know, we, we were still developing at the time, so we, di we didn't have a finished product. But learning from them, like how they sounded on stage, we learned a lot about how we had to perform, like immediately and be on the, be on the dime like that. Because those guys, and they had all the sound. They had the bass, the baritone, the tenor. <laughs> I mean, they had all of it, the gospel. I mean, they had everything in all five guys. So when you see a dominant group like that, you're wondering how come they're not bigger than what they are because they had everything and they had songs too, but you know, the music industry is real fickle. If you don't have the right company, pushing the right things at the right time and just timing of everything. I mean, the, the timing of them coming out with Boys and Men and Jodeci, I don't know how you fit. So right. it's real weird how that works. But as far as them, and we're still friends to this day, but those guys, Man, that that if you want to come out the gate, learn from them, and we 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 were gonna be all right. Yeah, and one group during that period I felt was underrated that should have gotten more popularity, but for some reason another didn't was uh today. So can we talk about uh today? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, today for us, today was. I mean, there was, you know, that was during a time. That was during the time, what was that, late 80s, I guess it was. Um, you know, Big Bub's voice, man, that tone was, you know, just that, that gospel sound. Um, but see, during that time, that's when people were really performing groups. And you started having the arm, I mean, not just the R&B artists doing it, but you also had the rappers you know, uh, rapping and dancing, you know, had the two two dancers behind them. So, you know, Bobby Brown, you know, basically kind of, you know, merged the R&B and the and that that hip hop uh, together. And, and you know, today was doing the same thing. So we were uh, we were watching all of those groups, man, today, listening to their uh, 
to their sound and 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 you know trying to do their dance moves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so much props to them for sure. So Drill, I don't I don't know if you knew this, but we used to go down to uh, to Teddy's camp um, the spring before I graduated and the spring before we came out, and we did songs with Leon Silvers. And we just studied everything in Teddy's camp. And it was right before Black Street was being developed. So we knew Joe Stone Street and all those guys early on. Mm. And being in the camp and learning like what that sound was and having the presence of hearing Guy in person and knowing what they were doing on stage. I mean, we just had all the signs were around us that we were around big things, but what were we gonna do with the moment? that was right before us. And we sang, man, I swear, we sang acapella everywhere, like KT said, and we sang it in New York. We're like at all these record companies and I don't know how they didn't sign us because we were singing, if I ever, like we did on the record, right there in front of them. And they were still like, eh, it's all right. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean? Because if Howard is liking what we're doing and everybody else like what we're doing, why wouldn't you sign us? It didn't make any sense. But we were still gathering and developing and, and still being around groups that were out and, and learning how to do stuff in the studio, being on stage and, and figuring out what we need to do because we knew we weren't the, the dancing group, but we knew we could do things on stage that would be effective for us. And, and, and music was gonna change real quick too. So we had to anticipate all those moments. But being down at the Future Studios, I mean, those were like lifelong. This is before Remember the Time came out. This is before like, you know, a lot of the Black Street stuff came out. Guy was in between. No, they weren't in between. I, I think it was after the second album. So they were taking a break. And Teddy was like doing all his production stuff. So we got to see all his producers at work and all that kind of stuff. And those are things that people really didn't know. So when we came out and Teddy was like hosting a show on MTV, Teddy had really had the chance to, to sign us. But because he had Black Street, he was like, that's against my interest. Because if I sign you and then you come out, then Black Street coming out on the same label, and how are we gonna figure it out, all that out? So he didn't sign us for that reason. And uh, later on, we kind of figured out, well, well, thank goodness that he didn't because it allowed us to do what we ended up going on to do. Right. So that, that whole time period is really crazy. Right. And yeah, we, we almost, you know, Ted, we were in negotiations, well, talking about Teddy signing us as a possible. Man, that's crazy. And I wanted I'm sorry, to what? What were yeah, you saying? Yeah, I was wanted to mention how CMB was also Jay? part of the way we changed programming because you guys were a part of the Super Bowl halftime show that Living Color did to counter the Super Bowl halftime show that was going on at the time and how now the NFL has to be in bed with pop music yeah. because the year next year, they ended up getting Michael Jackson to do the Super Bowl halftime show. So how did that come about with you guys doing that for Fox and the Lemon Cola? You know, it's kind of why I don't know what the origin was behind it, whose idea it was, but, you know, I later on found out that I think we were the first to actually kind of do something similar to that. Uh, during that particular time or one of the first um, uh, where it was like a, 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 a halftime performance. And um, and it was just uh, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. I mean, I don't know whose idea it was, but whoever it was, I was so glad that they did. It was <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. 
And I want to ask oh, you. Oh, and Jennifer Lopez was a fly girl during that time. Yeah, she was a fly girl. Right. Carrie Ann Ananaba was a fly girl. Lorianne Gibson, I believe she was fly girl at the time. And they were choreographed by Rosie Perez, who mm-hmm. used to dance on Soul Train. Now, I want to ask this, Katie. Was the right kind of love ever pitched for you guys before it was given to Jeremy Jordan? Or was that specifically for Jeremy? I don't. I don't recall it being pitched to us. I don't, I remember Jeremy Jordan. I, I mean, we, we, I, uh, we liked him, but I don't, re, I don't recall hearing that. Um, yeah, not saying it did, curious. but I don't recall. Yeah, I was just curious because it had that same CMB sound. Now for All For Love, whose idea was it to come up with that? Cause it harkens me back to that era of Frankie Valley in the four seasons, that type of sound with that particular record. Well, you know, we had we had pinned the the the, the term hip hop doo wop. You know, trying to merge the the doo wop with, you know, with our love for R and B and, and hip hop, and so we were working with um, uh, a producer, uh, Hitman Howie T. You know, he had he had done some work on on also he worked on uh, I Want to Sex You Up as well. So we were doing some stuff with him, and and you know. It was just a throwback track we had heard, and you know, we start, excuse me, kind of writing to it, and 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 just threw threw on, you know, what we did, you know, we just kind of merged the two. So, mm-hmm. and it that's was how that came about. Crossover smash, and then the big appearance you guys on nine hundred two and in the Peach Pit, and I believe the soundtrack for nine hundred two and was through Giant. And how is that yeah. for you all being on the biggest yeah. TV show at the time and really getting that big feature? I mean, it was great. You know, I um, that was the biggest show, you know, at that particular time. So, of course, it was an honor. Look, the people know, I mean, I was jet lagged out. Uh, while we were filming that because we had just come from Europe, come from England actually. And we got off the plane and went straight to the studio. So I was just trying to stay up the whole time, but it was really cool. Cause they, they, they wrote this whole, you know, scenario around meeting us, you know, or incorporated that into much of, uh, of the storyline. And, and, you know, to this day, man, people are still talking about it. So, you know, it was a blessing. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask from both you guys' perspectives, being in the industry, what managed to keep you guys grounded when you could so easily get pulled in many different directions with the different offerings, you know, whether it be alcohol or hard substances, what kept you all rooted and grounded where some, they fall into the trap and really get caught out there? Mark, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll attack that one. Um, I mean, for us, we were kind of so busy doing music and loving the studio that we really didn't have time to really get into excess or do the things in L.A. that everybody else. Because once we landed in L.A., we had to finish the album because the song was already on the radio. 
And so the company was like, we're playing catch up. You got to finish the album because if you don't finish the album, we're not going to make money. You're not going to make money like you want to. So go ahead and finish it up. And I think we got that bad boy done like in three weeks, something like that. It's some mm-hmm. crazy record because it had to be ready for us to go out do the promo. And then once we did the promo, the album's going to come out in December. And then we got here in September. So it was finished early October, early November, doing some touch-ups, that kind of thing. And after that, we, we were out. And like he, like KT said, being on the road is more exhausting than anything else because you don't have, they don't take promo, do this, phone calls, phoners, interviews, and you're just out and about. So when people look at Justin Timberlake and, and uh, Britney Spears and they don't understand what these people are going through as solo artists and Usher and all those people, there's so many demands that at least in a group, you can disseminate like how you want to do it all four people you do this you do that one person does this two people do this and you can kind of make it make sense but with a solo artist it's all on you so when these people take breaks i mean mental breaks are a real thing and i don't really back then they didn't they didn't care (laughs) they did not care at all they're like no, no, you're gonna do as much as we need you to do because that's where it is and i will be honest with you we we hurt one show we were supposed to do is for the National Association for Broadcast Journalism, which is all black journalists. We did not do the show because we were just off a plane, like you said, from Europe, and we were just tired. And, but instead of the record company pitching to us that why we need to do this show and how important it was for us, we were just beat down and we knew we weren't going to sound good. But Again, they didn't care. They're just like, you're so hot, you have to do it. You have to do it. Right. You have to you have to do it. And we're like, we gotta shut it down. We gotta shut it. And we paid, we paid a dear price for it for a long time. And we had mm. to do some makeup, we had to apologize, we had to write letters, we had to, you know, gestures, whatever it took to get us back on the map to get people to pay attention to us because they thought that we were just doing it because they were black journalists and we didn't respect them. It had nothing to do with that. Of course, we were just tired because being number one, it has all all the advantages and all the drawbacks go with it too. And you don't know which way is up. You don't know what to think. You're on the plane here, plane there. And it it really, it's a blur. A lot of that, that first year is a blur in my life. And I really don't remember a lot of it. I remember the joy from it but it really is a blur and the relationships that you could probably make change down the road. You don't remember them at first because you can't remember whose name you can't remember where you are. You can't remember the hotel. <laughs> I mean, all that stuff. So th- those are the things that I think keep you together as a group, because if you don't communicate, if you don't stay together, if you don't associate your voices with any type of joy or, or goodness that comes from that time, you're not you're not going to make it. And luckily, we pulled ourselves through that period, and uh, and, and stayed together uh, through all of that. Oh, do you, oh, so I'll, I'll chime in on it. So for us, or I, I, I can only speak for myself. You know, what I mean, um, for myself, it was kind of a. a it's, to me, it's amazing how God works because the, there are certain things in your life that you can look at and then you're like, wow, that was, that was just kind of terrible. But then when I step back away from the emotions of it, 
I can see how even as bad as it was, it, it was a benefit to my life overall. So like, I remember we had two managers um, and, uh, and in fact, just the, the last one just passed like two weeks ago. Uh, he was killed in a car accident. Uh, but we had two managers, uh, one who actually discovered us. Um, he was the road manager for Cool in the Gang and became our personal manager. Then he hooked us up with the other gentleman who, um, who actually developed us. All of our work ethic, everything being tight and all of that stuff, all of that came from him. So, you know, I always give him credit for that. However, we didn't find out till later on, you know, he would like disappear. Like he would, we thought that he was just kind of cheating on his girl or something like that. Cause we were all living in a one bedroom apartment with him and his girl. Come find out he was addicted. He had an addiction to drugs. And when I was, and this was before we broke. So um, in fact, right before we did our, um, our um, right before we did our showcase for Giant, we were actually rehearsing in New Jersey at uh, one of the founding members of Cooling Gang uh, named Khalees Bain. He, he's, he's passed on too uh, recently. Um, he had a studio in New Jersey. So we went out to the studio um, and we were uh, practicing for this showcase for Giant. Uh, and this guy, the, the manager, he got on one of his benches and left us, man. He left us there with no, because we lived in New York. He left us there with no money, no food, no transportation. We had to make calls and, and some people had to make arrangements to get us back to New York and stuff like that. So all of that to say, I saw how it took a toll on us, how it took a toll on everybody else that he loved. And I saw how it took a toll on him because if, if you really ask him, I, I would truly believe that he did not want to be that person, but it was an addiction, right? So watching that and having going through that, it kept me away from, I never wanted to lose control like that whether it be drugs or alcohol. So I kind of stayed shy of all of that. Yeah, it's definitely easy to, you know, get lost if you're not rooted and grounded and really know who you are as a person before getting into the business. Because, I mean, watching, you know, New Editions miniseries and to just see what Ricky was going through, how he kept that so close to the vest that mm -hmm. nobody knew uh, outside of this internal circle until the miniseries dropped. So that leads into my next question. What is it that you think about groups that causes groups not to stick together? Because now you don't really see groups and to see new edition still standing 40 plus years later, what is it in your opinion are the ingredients that groups tend to not stick together like that anymore? Uh, I think it's hard for groups to stay together. One, you're in your teens and your 20s. And then, you know, at some point, the natural progression of life is to people have their own agendas. They grow, they grow apart. You have families and sometimes families are, you know, complete distraction. And going back to music and, you know, if you don't have a good partner that understands that you do music for a living, 
They might not quite understand the demands that come along with that. They love the perks of it, but they may not understand the demands of it. So a lot of times I, I think that it, it's hard to keep the group together unless there's a, a singular focus. Like, a, like New Edition always had a focus on, okay, Brooke is gonna do this to make sure that this is happening right now because there's the 10th anniversary or there's the 20th or there's some, there's some type of focus to bring it back together. And uh, I think for us, we, at least for myself, I stayed in the group for about 15 years. And then after 15, I was like, I will never have my life with a family if I keep on this path. So that allowed me to kind of finally break away. And if I didn't do it then, when was I gonna do it? And um, this, because of that, now I have a family. Um, my daughter just graduated college. Uh, oh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. So my, my son is seven and, and my life is just completely different than what it was before. Still involved with music, but just differently now. And because of that, my wife is completely understanding of what I do and completely supportive. And if you don't have that type of support in each family of a group member, it's gonna to be tough, it'll be real tough. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, and unless you're, you said something serious, um, and, it, and it's really hard to do so in your early 20s because you're still learning to develop you. I mean, you're still learning yourself. You know what I mean? So to be grounded and, and completely mature, that's a learning process. But I will say this. A lot of times what really, I think, breaks a lot of groups up is pride. Pride mm -hmm. and ego, you know what I mean? And, and um, the thing of it is, is that I, I'm just not, I'm not the type of person that, I feel like I can't even enjoy success. I can't enjoy um, uh, the fruits of whatever I have if I feel like I've had to get them by ill gain. Uh, you know what I mean? If I've had to rip people off or treat them, you know, a certain kind of way just so I can get it. That to me is not pleasurable at all. But some folks feel like that's how they got to get ahead, you know? And, and so when unless you're all on one accord, you know, and, and early on, that's what you find in a lot of groups. They have that passion for music. That's the key factor. Um, but you have to keep working on the, the relationship amongst each other because it's so easy. There's so many different entities, whether it be females or even the industry, you know what I mean? The business. I remember Luther Vandross saying uh, uh, in an interview, the music business is 10% talent, 90% business. And that is true. People got to know. You got to know the business. And whatever you don't know, somebody else will know and exploit it. And if you don't have a really great team around you, it's real easy to pick people apart, you know. Uh, so you have to really fight for those relationships and fight to, to really be respectful of one another. So that's, that's one of the main things, I believe. Mm. Now, did you guys ever cross paths touring on the same bill or were you guys watching each other closely by being on different bills, different acts? Or did you guys ever do any shows together? I don't remember us doing shows together because I think our timing was a little after yeah. um, I was out. Um, but I think there might have been a couple of award shows. That I think we crossed paths a little bit. And I, we, we always met and everybody was always excited to meet everybody else. Yeah, I yeah. think that was 
thing because you never get the chance to have excitement you're so busy working 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 that when you see somebody you're like oh my god i finally met you like it's dope and you get that one night to kind of hang out in the club and hang with everybody else and that, that's like the epitome of joy when you meet other groups and hang out with them mm, now what was it for you all going into the studio making the sophomore efforts to the debuts both being white hot and the pressure from the labels like, hey, we got to recreate the same success of If Ever or we got to recreate the same success of I Want to Sex You Up and going into the studio and making those sophomore albums. Go ahead. I think, I think for us, I mean, to be honestly, I, I, I mean, there's some, there's, there's the first album, CMB, there's just so much around it that makes it so special because it was the first one. You know, but my favorite album that we've done was our second album, Time and Chance. Uh, we were extremely creative. I think we did take a, like Mark was saying, man, we were so tired after touring and touring and touring. But that's what you got to do. You got to just keep it going, keep it that ball rolling. And then you had, you know, people start talking about the sophomore jinx. So we were really careful. We want to make a great album. Uh but, you know, and we just didn't want to, we, and we wanted to expand. We wanted to show people, you know, the depths of what we could do. The problem is this, and I learned this early on, even from um, uh, Dwayne Wiggins from Tony, Tony, Tony. He has said, the music industry is a world within the world. And everybody knows each other. So a lot of times you piss off one person, <laughs> man, you can get black blackballed. And so... It just so happens that, you know, we were going through some internal issues with like management. I felt like we weren't really being represented well. And it just kind of catapulted us to having to uh, jump into this business that we were just really naive to, but doing the best that we could. And me being the oldest, so a lot of times I felt like I had to really protect everybody. So a lot of times, man, I was bumping heads with the record company and just out of pride, man, they'll shelf you. So the second album didn't really just out of, in my opinion, just out of pride, the second album did not get a lot of, a lot of play um, because it wasn't promoted at all. They, you know, I guess out of spite, instead of promoting here in the United States, they shipped us out to, uh, to Europe and still didn't really promote it. And then kind of, you know, uh, what Mark was saying is, is wild because what our dynamic was this, and it wasn't us, but it was perceived to have been us. When we came out, we broke R&B, right? Because of I Want to Sex You Up. But then here it is, I Don't Mean More, it goes number one on the pop and R&B charts at the same week. So it was kind of both ways, but then here you go, this poppy off of love, right? And the record company and all the people behind, you know, running everything were sending us out to all of these radio stations to do all of this promo stuff and all this stuff. Didn't know that we were only going to the pop stations <laughs> later on. And then, so that pissed off all the R&B stations. So here it was, they, they kind of had a bad taste in their mouth. And, and come the second album, we were trying to, we, we had an opportunity to actually lead with um, a song that, that we did with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, of which we would have, 
it, it would have, you know, sent us, you know, over the top as well. But we were trying to recapture also the R&B, that base that we, we had before. So that's when we led with, because I guess, you know, the chronic and everything like that was out at that time. So we re- led with uh, the song Time and Chance, of which we did with Ice Cube's uh, um, producer, uh, DJ Pooh. And I, it just kind of got the wrong, I, I don't know, people thought we were trying to be something we weren't. We were just trying to be creative. And, and you know, it just kind of went from there. So a lot of politics that were involved. Yeah. yeah. So many situations that you just described with the pop threatening, if you didn't do this before the other radio station, we're never going to play you again. People right. never talk and it's, it's just amazing to me that you're just trying to do music. You're just trying to sing on stage. And then all of a sudden you get this threat. You're like, so what do I do with this? <laughs> and if right. you don't have representatives to deal with the situation, then it, it, it turns real bad real quick. So, right. Yeah, it's just crazy how the industry really divides space on genres and race as well. Because if you look at new kids and how at the core, they were R&B, but once everybody saw that pop money, that was when Top 40, Nickelodeon, MTV came in their direction. But, you know, when I interviewed Danny and how they were like, we are R&B and we want to incorporate more R&B in our music when we were at the height. But, you know, everybody behind the money machine, like, focus on pop, 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 pop. Yep. The thing about them, though, they might have been focusing on R&B, but they didn't have an R&B budget. We had to deal with R&B budgets until we could prove that we could sell a certain thing. So they kept trying to minimize what we were doing. And like KT said, we were trying to expand and grow and trying to be musicians. Because the one thing you hate as a singing group is that when people compare you, oh, you're not a real band. You're not this. And we're like, wait a minute, we are a band. <laughs> like, right, what do you think right. we we, we compose all this stuff and we make it work, but you're assuming because we're black, we're, we don't do certain things or we can't do certain things. And we were trying to really prove on the second record that we could do more than what we did even on the first record, but it had to be different because we were different people after touring, like for the first two years of our career. So the record wasn't going to be the same. It wasn't going to be If I Ever. It wasn't going to be another acapella. And the acapella that we did have from yours got blackballed because they weren't ready to deal with it. So we, uh, let me go back. So yours was created as we did grad nights for Disney World in the May of 1993. We're preparing the tour, we're doing grad nights. And so we wanna do another acapella. So the whole thing about the EP coming out later for Christmas was because yours was created in May. We went to a radio station, Orlando, the same thing we did in DC and the radio station played yours after we finished it. It blew through the roof, MCA stopped it. Why would they stop it? because they weren't ready to put it out. They weren't ready to promote it. The train wasn't coming around the corner and ready to go because we created this piece. Now in today's world, oh my God, we would have been fine. Just be able to put it out, social media, yeah. that could be. But this was 1993, the companies didn't roll like that. Man. So because we were doing things and they thought we were trying to make them look 
We weren't trying to make them look bad. We're just trying to create music. What did you ask for? You asked for acapella. Yours is probably one of the best acapella pieces we had done. However, because you weren't ready for it, it got not shelved, it got sidetracked until the EP was ready so the company could make a lot more money later on. Mm. So when it comes down to it, it comes down to how much money they can make off your product and how much they can put the package together as opposed to us having the independence to put the package in and work on things one at a time. And not only that, we had yours and we were coming off of uh, the place where you belong, where we sat with John Landis and created a piece for Beverly Hills Cop 3. So we had, the train was rolling, the train was rolling for us and it should have been just fine. But the record company said to us, you're taking too long for your record. We just got back to the studio and we're trying to create pieces that are special, but mm -hmm. you don't want to create pieces that are special because you want us to put it out. <laughs> so you, it, you, you, you're just chasing your tail at that point and we're trying to make it work. But I still think we made a pretty decent record for the second record. Um, it's way more mature than the first record, uh, way more seasoned. We were able to really take our time and develop things a little bit differently than the first one. So a lot of fans actually liked it, but it didn't get that promotion outside of the place where you belong. So what do you do? You just do what you can. And, and the people who did the first record to make the re first record blow up, the company got dissolved. So we had a whole new staff. Politics. Yeah. <laughs> so the politics, they didn't care about us at that point. If you do something, that's fine. That was Mary J. Mary J is rolling down the pipe. She's doing everything, but you guys aren't doing the much. You're not listening to us. So we'll just put you on the side over here. On the shelf. That's exactly what happened to us. So, you know, it, that's just the way it goes sometimes. But, you know, you just have to put out your best effort and keep mm -hmm. going with it. Yeah. So your thoughts, both of you, on Boys to Men and how when they came out with Cool Out Harmony, it was an instant smash crossover. And then once two hit, that really took them over the stratosphere. And did you feel that their success for R&B groups opened up the door for more groups? Or did it kind of hurt where labels were looking at every R&B group male-wise and was like, um, you guys got to be here because Boys to Men is here? That uh, they definitely raised the bar. And I think the reason they raised the bar so much because they spent a lot of money and they had money to spend was because they wanted to make sure that they could dominate. And because the way we came out, nobody saw that coming. And you have all these groups coming in behind us and they had to sit on the, on the, on the sideline for a long time. So they were stewing and they were like, if we're going to, if we're going to be here, we have to be here. So that's why they got Jam and Lewis and Babyface to produce most of the record. I mean, but it worked for them because they had the machine. They went to the machine and it worked. You know, everybody doesn't have that machine, but when they came out, they were doing stadiums. Okay, we weren't doing stadiums at that point. So, you know, how can we compete when somebody else is putting this type of budget for the group that's been out before that has these monumental end of the road ballad of the century songs? How are you going to compete with that? So once they hit the top like they did, it was hard for groups to come behind them and do anything. And groups weren't in fashion at that point. They kind of went the solo route. They and companies weren't pushing groups at that time because how many posters do they really want on the wall of all these black groups? I mean, I hate to say it, 
the spades of spade right there, but that's kind of where it was at. You had all these black groups that were popular, but there were no white groups at the time. So NSYNC was created, Backstreet Boys were created off of our music and it worked for them and it got other companies to, to pull back and be like, okay, we don't have to do the R&B thing as much because now we have a new type of group that we can promote differently and better. And we know the formula based on what happened in the early 90s. So we, we can go this direction now, and we're comfortable going this direction. See, you know, I, I think, that, and if you look back at it, you know, like I told you on this, on you know, our sophomore situation, I mean, we could have, you know, if we had the support of the record company um, in a major way and, you know, and, and made some decisions also, uh, some a, little, a few better decisions on our own, you know, it could have possibly sustained us. But if you look at it, you know, right after that second album uh, or in the middle of it, the industry changed. Grunge shut everything down. The whole type, grunge shut R&B, pop, grunge shut it all down. And the, the industry is so, it, it, I mean, it's kind of fickle. It, it just goes with whatever is popular at that particular time. So it took all of that. And then by the time, and then during, in the midst of that, um, if I'm not mistaken, Boys to Men was, they were signed to Motown and Motown was going through a shift um, of leadership. And they had to figure out what they were going to do with Boys to Men. And they decided, from what I understand, because of their success, to you know renegotiate their deal and stuff like that and they made them a priority the new new team made them a priority by the time that happened now after that whole grunge situation my timeline is straight there was just nobody there was a vacancy there was a vacancy on in pop music there was a vacancy in r&b music and they just filled in that void there were, they had no competition I mean, we weren't around at that particular time. You know, Shy wasn't around. Um, uh, Jodeci kind of, they did a little something, but it wasn't on that level. And then they, and, 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 and rightfully so, they brought it. They saw that opportunity. I mean, I think probably the closest to that um, prior to that would be like, you know, like new kids on the block, new kids on the block. There was, a, there was a vacancy, there was a void, boom. They filled that void, boom. And they didn't really have a lot of competition with that. Same right. thing with uh, Boys to Men. At that particular time, they were killing it. And they <laughs> came up with really great music. And the cool thing about it with them though, they just, at that point, they never looked back. No. <laughs> they just moved, they, they rolled that thing out. Yeah, and it's crazy how you look during the New Jack Swing era, how, you know, a lot of the pop acts were heavily influenced by that genre. Because if you go look at old Mickey Mouse Club clips, a lot of the songs Young Britney, Christina, Justin, JC, and them were doing were all from that era. Boys to Men, You Guys, Jodeci, Mary J, Jay. So they were heavily influenced by that mm -hmm. sound. And once they got in their respective careers, they just took elements of that and just put a little pop sprinkle on it. Case in point, and also if you go over to Europe, you can hear New Jack Swing elements and Take That, E17, M8, and Damage, also Rhythm and Bass, and how they were listening to Heavy, what you guys were doing over here in the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. You know, no, but I would say this, and I just got to say this, and no disrespect to any groups by any means, but the terminology, I really, I hate, I, I hate being labeled a boy band. That to me, like, diminished. That came out, that was like during the whole NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, they labeled them that because it was more, it was like, a, like, I mean, you know, ours was like, what? Just four members you had, I think at the most made four, somebody may have five, and then you start having like these almost like ensembles, you know what I mean? Which is great because I, I give all props to, to you know Backstreet Boys and, and NSYNC and stuff. But now they go back and label all of us like shy, us, uh, boys to men, um, Jodeci. We weren't, weren't boy bands. It's like calling the Temptations a boy band. They weren't yeah. a boy band. They were a group. We were all yeah. groups and that stuff. But because I, 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 I think that it's just kind of, it comes with the, you know, we put a lot of, a lot of effort and and time and sweat into into everything that we did. Not saying that they didn't, um, by any means. But I think the people that that put those labels on you um, do so in a you know you just just grouping you all together and doesn't really give you your individual props and 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 i think it they kind of do it in a, a almost a condescending way that that boy band label just drives me nuts <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i mean you wouldn't mark you wouldn't consider yourselves a boy band would you no way no way yeah, I, I, we, were, I, we, were, we were groups, you know, yeah. like the four tops. You wouldn't say four tops was a, was a boy. Band. It was grown folk music. Grown <laughs> folk music, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I want to talk about one male R&B singer in particular who I felt should have gotten more attention. You know, the Sexational album, great album when you go back and listen to it. This group oh. had great success when they first came out. Pop R&B crossover hits. I like the way the Kissing Game. She's playing hard to get. Never should have let you go. And I believe he was gone from us way too soon. So can we just talk oh. about Tony and his impact and how I felt he should have had a bigger career? Uh, Tony, Tony was one of those guys that when you talked to him, you just knew it was a genuine conversation about music. And I didn't really get to talk to him till later before he passed away. But, and it was just something simple. It was just about him being on the show with us or getting him on stage to do his thing. And, uh, but when you talk to him, he had that passion. He had that, that it made you want to do better music because you're talking to Tony and Tony just wanted to put it out there about how talented he was and about how good, and he would never say it, but we would tell him, Tony, you're one of the best singers that is in the industry, like ever, like, and you deserve this. Like, I don't think he knew he deserved the accolades that people were giving him. And we were just trying to make sure that we gave it to him before he left. And that's why I think it's so important that we give people their flowers. So they, they definitely know that we love them and that we support them. Uh, things that people go through, they just need help sometimes. and. I, I don't think he really truly understood that, but I was so grateful that I got the chance to really talk to him for at least like five years. And I, I'll never forget that time because that, 
that that guy right there, he he epitomized what R&B music was all about. And he, yeah. every time I hear a song in this industry and here's love the kissing game and everything, I'm like, man, we lost him too soon. But he still, he left the legacy in R&B with us and it, it'll go forever. Yeah, you know, it's kind of wild. I have a, I have a Tony Thompson um, uh, story too. Way back when I was like in, like junior high school, uh, that's where I met Brian. I mean, that's when I really started taking singing seriously. Um, and there was this girl in my neighborhood that I, I just had this huge crush on. Well, right down the street from her, uh, Tony would come. I don't know how often, it was just during the summers or whatever, but he was a little boy at that particular time, but his cousins lived down the street. So, here it was, I ran into this boy way before there was, um, uh, you know, high five or anything. He was a little boy and I remember his cousin coming up to me, is like, hey, hey, you think you can sing? My little cousin, Tony, <laughs> he can whoop you singing. And Tony had just that voice, Tony was, was really amazing. And um, it was sad, I remember, I think that was what, uh, something like 2007, I, they had two, Two um, two services for him. The primary service, of course, was in Waco, but they had one here in Fort Worth, and um, I was able to go there, and um, I spoke at that memorial, um, you know, giving him his respects. Mm -hmm. uh, give me, give me your guys' top five influential albums of the New Jack Swing era. Oh boy, uh, guys. <laughs> Yep, so around 80, 80, 87 to 92, 93. The whole guy yeah. first out. Guy, yes. Um I mean, uh don't be cruel. That that album, but I mean, because because my prerogative actually broke that that particular album. I mean, I, I think he came out with I think he came out with Don't Be Cruel, Bobby Brown, but when he hit that my prerogative, man, I mean that just that just broke it up. Um, let's see. I mean, Teddy was just killing it. I mean, Teddy was he was just killing it. I mean, even the Keith Sweat, well, I think what I want her, you know what I mean? All of that stuff that Teddy was doing was just amazing. But that guy album, oh my gosh, that guy album was it. <laughs> that was it. Oh, Johnny Kemp too. Just got paid. Just got paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think what what number five would be. Um, uh, eighty, eighty nine, eighty. Is that heavy D up in there? He did some heavy D stuff, right? And yeah. I, I know he worked with a couple of rappers too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? One thing. I mean, I, I just remember a lot of the singles, but that, if you're talking about albums, that guy album was just it, you know what I mean? Um, that debut album and even that second one, oh my gosh, they, they, were, they were really great albums. Or, or I'm thinking about actually the remix when they, they redid uh, uh, Teddy, oh, the one with Teddy's Jam, oh my gosh, yeah, come on, yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but he was working with an artist that, the song was just crazy. I don't, I don't know. She, I don't think she did anything afterwards. Don't wanna fall in love. Um, oh yeah, oh, Jane uh, Child. 
When he was working with Jane Child, Mark, right after that, that's when we started going to right? the studio with, with, uh, with him. He was kind of he was kind of having, I guess, his little issues with Gene Griffin. And did y'all uh -huh. y'all knew? Did you know Harvey? Yes, yes, we knew Harvey. You know Harvey. <laughs> Harvey, Harvey. Yeah, yeah, Harvey. <laughs> yeah, Harvey. <laughs> yeah, Teddy told me Harvey passed. Oh, is that right? Oh. Yeah, I don't know know when. I ran into him like I don't know, like 20, 20, 2013. Something like uh, that at a show. We did a show with Black Street, and um, he told me, Yeah, Harvey had passed. Oh man, I mean, that's just it's it's a magical time going back. And oh, oh, today, him or me, that's another one. Yep, yep, did today. Yeah, oh my goodness, mm -hmm. at that time period with that new Jack Swing, there's nothing quite like that. It everything in the club that it was. Way too much, way too much. Yeah, so let me give you guys my top five influential albums of New York Swing Era in no particular order. Key Sweat, Make It Last Babble. Mm -hmm. Guy's debut album. New Editions, Heartbreak album. I'll Be Sure in a Fat Mode. And oh, yeah. Don't Be Cruel, Bobby Brown. Mm -hmm. Good five. That's a good five. Yeah, yep. I like that. With I'm some, with it. Uh, with some singles you know, that we talked about. Yeah, that's a good five. Yeah, and I also want to give mention, nobody talk about this guy enough in the production that he did, Kyle West, who I had the rare pleasure of interviewing because knowing he rarely gives interviews. I think nobody gives Kyle West his flowers enough. Right, right, yeah. The song, Donnell Jones, do you, know, you guys know he did that? Oh, no, uh-uh. So... I don't know if it's the remix of uh, wait, where you want to be? That's Kyle West. Like, it took me years to figure that out. And I'm like, how did I not know that? <laughs> like, I, I'm trying to figure it out. Know, you know what I didn't know? I did not know that uh, um, I'll be sure co-wrote uh, So you're having my baby And it means so much to me he did that one with Jodeci. It was it was he did that for what's the name? Kim Porter. He wrote that for her. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, when wow. that, yeah. I guess that would have been what's his name? Chauncey. Ha! Look at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Jodeci really quick and how when they came out, it was the merging of R&B gospel. They cut their teeth for coming out, singing backgrounds for 5MC, anybody that was signed to Uptown, oh. and knowing how both the Haley brothers and the Great brothers came from the church, and Devontae was no joke, because if you listen to I'm Still yeah. Waiting, KC is doing a little bit of commission running back to you, so you hear that gospel influence right there Absolutely. in their music. So let's talk about Jodeci and their impact on the industry. Jodeci was so power-packed on the R&B music industry, from their clothing, to their singing, to the power, to the uh, just showing that Black unity on stage. Like, that was one of the, the first shows that I had seen in L.A., and I went back and wrote changes that night because I was like, I got to do something else because what I just witnessed on this stage, and I met them, too, um, that night. I, I really didn't talk to Dalvin and Devontae that much. But 
the Haley brothers have always been great to me from the beginning, from day one. Like anybody who thought we didn't get along, that was never the case. Jojo, Casey, they always took, if, if I saw them, it was one big party and we just got along so well. And they told me, they whispered in my ear, like, we hear you on the album. Don't you worry, we hear you. And nobody else would acknowledge my presence like that except them. So it gave me validation and the confidence to keep doing what I was doing and, and to always give my all because it came from these great brothers who gave nothing but their voices to the industry. And, and no matter what anybody says, I mean, they are black music. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's black music right there. And uh, I, I'm so grateful that I got a chance to like be along with them for the ride. Uh, so to speak, and I'm I'm happy to see them still doing well today because they they still blow they blow as well as they did back in the day, which right. is rare for you to keep your voice after a, a long time like that. So, um, man, those guys changed everything. Changed everything. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I will say this too, you know, I, you know, there's somebody that I got to throw out there as well, um, and they don't get a lot of props. Um, where they should, and if you if you ever get to know them, the, some of the coolest guys, but really really talented, and that's all for one. Mm, yes, all for yeah. one. Those boys are the truth. Those boys are the truth. You know what I mean? You know, um, I I humbled myself, and I and I, I keep everything transparent. You know, with me, I mean, I'm I'm just an open book, so some people may take this wrong, but I mean, I, it's just what it was because I know in the industry. When something hits, a lot of times the industry will just try to carbon copy that. You know what I mean? So initially when, when Off One came out, I didn't have the greatest respect for them. And I, and I told Jamie, the, you know, one of the lead singers there, I told him exactly how I felt. I was like, now I just honestly thought that you guys were like put together or, or were like a, a carbon copy of us. But getting to know you, doing some shows with you, you guys are the truth. They are. Okay. Utmost respect as people and as artists, they are amazing. Don't get the respect that they they deserve. People, and I I think because they did the cover of I swear, I think that's what people didn't give them their credit from the gate. But mm -hmm. but after meeting them and sitting down with them and, and like musically like really talking to them, like these guys are sharp. Those are bad. They bad. <laughs> they bad. And you don't say that about everybody. You, you meet a lot of people. You don't say that, but they were they were really bad. And again, it's such a special period to go through that time and, and meet a lot of uh, the folks in the industry and, and people going through it and and knowing that they have a top song and can handle it. Because just because you have a top song doesn't mean you can handle it. They they were all about the business of music and, and keeping it going for as long as they could. So. I always loved that about them. Right. And was there ever one group from the both of you, you guys wish that was out during your time period that would have had bigger success, but for reasons or another didn't? Mm. Uh, bigger success. Like you knew of them, but it just really didn't have that one breakout hit. I think because we saw UNV when they were kind of in their original format in Detroit because we saw them when nobody knew them and for them to come out to LA and actually have something going on and it, for it to become a, a, 
um, a moderate hit. I wish they had different songs that would have exploited them to be a little bit bigger than what they actually became. But we, we saw them early and they, they were really good. They're a really good group. So I, I wish they had probably gone to a different company that probably would have helped them because they were really talented as well. Probably as talented as any group that, that was out. Hmm. I mean, I know there's a group that um, I don't know to the extent that I know that they did get signed, um, but there was a group called Jazz A that was out of um, Florida, Orlando, and um, I had actually met them in a in a um, in a shopping mall, and I was trying to trying to help them get started, um, but during the time. Uh, we started having our issues with the management. I didn't want to bring them into some mess. Uh, but those, those boys were some of the most talented singers I had ever heard. Those boys were great. Um, they did do something. I know they did get signed and they did, a you know, had some sort of single, but I don't know what it did. I don't even know the, the, the name of the single, but they were amazing. Jazz A, J-A-Z-E was the name. And I'll give you guys my two. Um, the one group that I felt should have been bigger, uh, Real Seduction. They were an R&B group based out of New Orleans. They were signed to Atlantic, had the record Ain't Nothing Wrong, which was written by my second group that I felt should have had bigger success beyond R&B, and that's Intro. Yeah, yeah, man. Meta real seduction in in person they sang probably some of the best vocals I've heard uh, from a lot of groups. They were really 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 intense on the on the Jodeci type level, but I, I think just the records didn't translate the way you they, you heard them in person, and that mm. I think that was something that held them back. Intro was. That's a whole different situation because those guys right there um, and just meeting Kenny in person, another one we lost too soon, but just meeting him in person and knowing like all his talent just rolled up into one and coming out with that first album. <laughs> that thing came out. We were like, oh, wow. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Crazy. And here last we. question. I want to get you guys out of here on this. Um, what do you guys have to say about the legacy of New Jazz Swing and uh, respectively both your groups, because as we saw earlier this year with the AMAs, with uh, New Edition and New Kids performing, how they're still standing and how that era of music is still being felt to this day. Um, New Jack Swing is probably going to be one of the most influential genres of music moving forward because it, it the danceability of it, it never goes away. And it is always gonna be involved with something. It may not be totally number one at the top, but as far as its movability, how it makes you feel, there's no music that kind of makes you feel like New Jazz Swing and it makes you move like immediately. And you, you can pinpoint that time period um, whenever you hear it. So I, I think from the legacy of it and how it influenced us and, we actually had a song, our first song was called You Got It Going On, and it had all of that New Jack Swing element to it. I don't know if anybody's ever gonna hear this song, but because it makes you feel so good, that's the essence of music. 
And I think that's what's going to make it last forever. I mean, I give props to the New Jack Swing era. I mean, because Teddy, when he introduced it and, and, and coined that and all of that, it was just ridiculous. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but I just, I, I, I equally as much give props to like just our era of music, like that early 90s. I love, I love that era of music. You know, even, I mean, of course, in the 80s, um, you know, but not all, all of, uh, all of us really fit, not all of the groups and that's those sounds like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider like a riff, um, you know, with that New Jack Swing sound and not all of our stuff was New Jack Swing, but it all kind of incorporated within that time frame. So I believe that, um, I love that genre of music. And that's what I, I think that I miss in today's music. It, to me, it's uh, no disrespect, but a lot of it's just dumbed down. I mean, like there's no, no real melodies. I mean, and you got your whole auto-tune thing happening. And, and I mean, no hardly any melodies in the, in the vocals, no har hardly any melodies in the, uh, in the production. And, and it's just, I don't know. Um, but the saving grace for me, I love Bruno Mars. Yes, uh, sir. A young sure. dude, a young dude. This one dude, he, he's really impressive. Actually, Sam from our group is managing him, but Lucky Day. Lucky's lucky. That, that's a bad boy, too. He's good, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah lucky is no slouch because, like, when you go and listen to, you mentioned Bruno, his 24 Carry Magic album, he definitely studied that time period wholeheartedly. Yeah. That whole yeah, record was a new Jack Swing yeah. record updated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially with that, uh, um, the one he did with Cardi B. Oh, finesse. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, my dude, the dude that did the uh, talk box on on the uh, twenty four karat magic. That's my dude, Byron Talkbox Chambers. That that he's a he's a straight up dude, man. That is my dude. I've known him for for several years now, and I'm really proud of him. And the success that he's starting to get. He's just an independent artist, actually a Christian artist, but he's, yeah. you know, independent. And I'm glad that he's finally getting his due. Yeah, very much so. And ain't nothing like that new Jet Swing. So shout outs you want to give, fellas. If you want to plug your socials or whatever, go ahead and do so now. Well, I'm on Instagram. If anybody wants to reach out to me, uh M-A-R-C underscore G-A-Y. Um, and yeah, you can look forward to be some things coming up soon. I'm still working on a couple of things and some big projects. So we'll see what happens in the future. Well, Mark and, and Jay, um, I, you know, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed my time with you guys. Thank you so very much. And thank you uh, for the invite, Jay. Yeah, man, it's an honor. Cause like I said, at the top, who would imagine me being six, seven years old, listening to Shine, Color Me Back respectively and getting to know you guys and, you know, it's just been a privilege for me. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts and also on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Gay and Kevin KT Thornton, thank you guys for coming on once again. All right, Yes, sir. Stay.